Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King is our walk through the book of Acts together as we examine the book of Acts and we see what God is doing and starting the church and continuing the church. And these are lessons that we're learning that don't just apply to something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago, but these things are relevant to our lives today as believers in Jesus Christ, as we take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, we can be greatly encouraged and taught by the examples that we see in the book of Acts. And so we want to turn there in the book of Acts. Today will be in Acts chapter 16. And we're looking at the adventure that Paul and Silas and the others are having in the city of Philippi in Macedonia, their first uh, excursion into the European continent. And we've already seen that there's been great excitement there as a, a woman in her household, a woman named Lydia, uh, came to faith in, in Christ and invited all the men to stay with her. Well, we pick the action up in Acts chapter 16 at verse 16. And we're going to see some very interesting things. We're going to see the interaction of Paul and Silas and the others with both friends and foes. And this is what we'll see here today. It says this, and you can see that Luke is with them at this point because he says, we, Luke being the author of Acts. So they say here, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God.
But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's begin then with a word of prayer. Father God, as we explore these things together, Lord, I pray that you will guide us and that you will teach us by these things. Lord, that you will increase our faith by what we see here this day and that you will make yourself known. Lord, we pray that we would consider these things and that we, Lord, would be conformed to the image of your Son, that we would develop the kind of character that could sing even while in prison, that we would have the kind of hope that Paul and Silas would have, that we would have the kind of uh, desperate desire for salvation that the jailer would have. Lord, I pray that you'll just make yourself known to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we see, we saw uh, quite an exciting thing happening here in these in these chapters or in these verses in this chapter. And what we want to take a look at is we want to look at both friend and foes because the gospel is at the very knife's edge of what Jesus came to do. And Jesus did come and say, he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, implying that there would be a great division right at the point of the gospel. And this is exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing fulfilled the words of Jesus who said that he who is not for me is against me. And so we're seeing these different parties, these friends of the gospel, these foes of the gospel coming together and intersecting right here where the action is. So first thing I want to look at are the spiritual foes. And this becomes very apparent in verse 16, that there are spiritual forces at work against the spread of the gospel. In verse 16, we say uh, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And so this uh, evil spirit is in this slave girl. So I, I first of all want to make the point that the girl is not the foe. It's the spirit. Paul rebukes the spirit and not the girl. Because Paul says, to the spirit I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And this is interesting because the, the term used here, for spirit is very fascinating and it tells us a great deal about what this is about. Let me uh, show the phrase to you here. And this phrase is the pneuma puthona. Okay. Pneuma puthona. And this uh, puthona is where we get our word python. And so this is a pythian spirit. And they say, what, that's a spirit of a python? Are you talking about a spirit of a snake? No, 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 there's background to this. As we find as we come through the book of Acts that all of these places have these relevant backgrounds and that these things sometimes come into the foreground in the narrative and become important for us to explore and to learn. And so a little bit of studying the book of Acts, in fact, in studying the Bible at all, is to read 
the local customs, mythologies, things like that, that of the area to the people who originally received these scriptures. So a Pythian spirit, there's a legend that says that a serpent or a dragon guarded the famous oracle at Delphi in the, in the Greek legends. But that this uh, serpent or dragon, okay, had been slain by Apollo. The creature was called a Puthon, and it, it was called that because of the region in which it was found. Now this comes into our English language as Python. And in first century Greek, individuals with a spirit of divination, that is like the Oracle of Delphi, uh, would be telling of the future or unknown things or exercising even ventriloquism. Maybe that was the idea or the problem that was going on here. These kind of people were said to have a Pythian spirit. And this is what we find in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Now we're going to find that this kind of background of Greek mythology in these areas in which Paul and Silas and the others are going is going to explain a lot of what we see in the book of Acts. There are pagan beliefs and belief systems that have root in some kind of mythology, and that mythology is geographically determined in these areas of Macedonia and Greece and Phrygia, these kind of areas in which these things happen. And this happens to be one of the greatest blind spots of the church in the 20th and 21st centuries is that we have a great blind spot when it comes to any preconceived ideas of the supernatural. Because in the last few hundred years, as the scientific age unfolded and we began to solve many things that used to be mysteries to us, and we began to understand our environment more, how the world works and how the mind works and, and unlocking many great number of of pieces of knowledge, we began to scoff at the supernatural. We began to take anything that was supernatural or any suggestion of supernatural occurrences and write them off. We would say, oh, there's some scientific explanation or no, that can't be true because we know it's just a, a world of cause and effect of material things. We would take these issues and we would psychologize them. And we've lost sight of this. We would see someone like this girl today with a spirit of divination and we would say, oh, she's just, you know, incredibly attuned to nonverbal communication and she can read the, the faces of people, not so much read their minds or things like that. And we would discount these things in some kind of psychological, very skeptical kind of way. But what we need to understand is that for us, this is a blind spot. The Bible reveals very clearly that there are spiritual forces at work, particularly at work against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to have our minds open to what the Bible has to say about these things. This girl had a spirit of divination. And we are not going to suppose that Luke, as a physician, even in those days, though, was too ignorant to understand, oh, she had a psychological problem or whatever. No, the fact is people were willing to pay for whatever it is she was doing. This would denote something outside the norm, outside of mere delusion of this girl. This was something that she was able to do because of the help of an evil spirit of some kind. And so... The first thing we see is that this spiritual foe in this account 
is this spirit of divination. And this spirit of divination is one of many spiritual forces aligned against the gospel. There's much more than demons going on in this world. If we look at Ephesians chapter 12, Paul uses some interesting language here. When he speaks of putting on our spiritual armor, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul there uses several different terms. He says rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. He does not mean to intend, therefore, that there is merely Satan and there's some demons. No, there are other powers of other ranks as order to this world. And as we survey the Old and the New Testament together and we look at this, we understand this to be true. True. Now, we're not going to be able to unfold all these ranks and systems and, and organization of these supernatural forces, but we are to understand this. There are these various kinds of forces, and they are, many of them, aligned against God and against the gospel. They have rebelled against God, much like we have rebelled against God, many of them. So, I want you to think back then to the gospels, and I want you to think that Jesus was having these demonic encounters. In other words, he was casting out demons. And some of the most dramatic encounters he, he encountered when he went outside the land, what was considered the promised land of Israel. And now we see Paul is now crossing over into a new area of Macedonia. As they left Israel, they are meeting different spiritual forces as they go into different places. And interestingly, these different places have various religions, many of which they consider to be geographically tied. So they would worship these various gods in one place, but not in another place. In another place, they would have their own gods. They would have different gods. And these were the beliefs of the people of the time. So these spiritual forces are, are there. These spiritual forces are real and do have an impact. But as we see in this account, these spiritual forces are less than the name of Christ. In fact, they are less than the very least of the people in the kingdom of God, because those in the kingdom of God have been given all authority in heaven and on earth to spread the gospel. And therefore, this authority even, even trumps the authority of these spiritual forces. And so Paul is able to cast this demon out, and he does it in the name of Jesus. Rarely do we see such an obvious display of the supernatural as we see here and rather we usually see our opposition in human faces let's look at the human opposition here for just a moment first of all human foes uh, we count among them the owners the owners are definitely some foes here they're the ones who drag paul and and silas off to the magistrates interestingly Luke and Timothy, who were also with them at the time, were not dragged to the magistrates, were not thrown in prison. Uh, I don't know why, except maybe that Luke and Timothy were very obviously Roman citizens and maybe didn't look as, as Jewish as Paul and Silas. We know uh, Silas was from Jerusalem. We know Paul was trained up as a Pharisee and probably still kind of dressed that part. And so these two were singled out as the troublemakers. Uh, instead of the other two. 
these owners, all that they could see was the loss that they had. They were profiting from this girl's torment. And no one, and this is important to understand, this girl wasn't torment. It might not seem like it. It might seem cool that you would have these abilities. Matter of fact, a lot of people dabble in these things today, uh, hoping to receive some kind of special ability, hoping to make some kind of connection with these dark spiritual forces to make themselves special. What they don't understand is what the Bible shows very plainly, that anything received from these dark spiritual forces is going to come at a cost far greater than the benefit. This cost is your very own soul, your very own freedom and liberty as a human being. No one is given anything by these dark forces without it having a massive price tag attached to it. Now, legally, these owners legally could profit from any of her skills because she was a slave and she was owned. And I know we don't believe in that, you know, ethically, uh, especially in these days, that anyone should be owned by another human being. But nevertheless, it was the law of the land. And they, by all rights, could profit legally from any skill that she had. We do the same thing when we become an employee of a corporation these days. If you pay attention to all the various paperwork you sign, you are signing away your creative rights. That should you invent something that has to do with the work that you do in that place, that is owned by your owners, the corporation. And so this is not something completely gone out of society. It's something that's still there. But the problem here is that these men are profiting from something that is tormenting her. They're profiting from that which is harmful to her, harmful to the girl, harmful to everyone to whom this spirit would speak. They were peddling something dangerous. Now, whether they understood the extent of that danger or not, we don't know. But profit, we do know, was clearly their desire as it's plainly stated in the narrative. But there's something we need to understand about desires that explains human behavior. Look what James says in his letter. He says, and he talks about the nature of temptation here. And he's saying, you know, he's writing to people that are going through difficulties. And he's explaining to them, you can't blame God for your difficulties. You know, and you can't blame him for enticing you into sin or putting you in a situation in which you were tempted uh, because he doesn't tempt. And he says this about it. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. And so this is really the key to understanding human behavior. They are led by their desires and they will be lured and enticed by these desires to commit sin. And so these men were, they desired profit. They were lured and enticed by their desire to sinfully use what is damaging to this girl, whether rather than seeking her well-being. And then they were led to falsely accuse Paul and Silas uh, for various things to cause them trouble because of the anger that they had concerning their loss. And so the owners are definitely human foes here. Another human foes are, are these magistrates themselves. If we take a look at what they did, 
their job in a city like Philippi was to keep order. And there was clearly some trouble brewing here. And so what the magistrates did is they did what was expedient, what was uh, easy in order to keep order. But they did it sloppily. They didn't investigate. They didn't give due process to these men. Because in the Roman world, Roman citizens had a different set of rights than non-citizens. They had better rights. They had a better system of due process. There was not equal justice under the Roman law. There was the justice for the Roman citizen, and then there was the justice for the non-citizen. And probably based upon their appearance and the things that they were teaching, it was assumed that Paul and Silas were not Roman citizens, and they were treated accordingly. This is why they were afraid when it became known that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, because they understood that they had broken the law themselves, these men charged with keeping the law. So just like the owners, they were enticed by their desire to have an easy job. Let us have a day where we can get home on time and get to dinner. We got to put down this chaos and this rioting and, you know, we don't want this to turn into something ugly. So, so grab those guys, whoever they are, give them a good beating, throw them into prison. By tomorrow, everyone will forget about this and we'll send them on their way. And so they took the expedient way, the easy way, so that they could get home and have their dinners and get the kids to soccer or whatever else it was they were doing and just get on with their day and not be bothered by this minor issue of justice. These guys, these slave owners had some complaint about, you know, them ruining her slave girl or whatever. And, and so we're just going to be done with this. Just beat them and lock them up and we'll deal with them in the morning. So the magistrates are to blame in some of this. They are human foes to Paul and Silas. They're also, the crowd plays an element here. The crowd kind of jumps in. Let's look at the uh, scripture on this one. And here, once the, uh, the men, the owners, bring the charges and bring Paul and Silas before the rulers, it says uh, when they brought them to the magistrates, they made these accusations. These men are Jews and are attacking or, and are disturbing our city, advocating these things. Look at verse 22. The, the crowd joined in attacking them. Now, isn't that just like a crowd? Don't we see a good bit of this in things today? These people were not wronged by Paul and Silas. They didn't know who Paul and Silas were. They didn't know the details of what was going on. Nevertheless, they see some of their fellow uh, citizens, these owners, perhaps known by the community, and these strangers from out of town, Paul and Silas, these unknown elements teaching different things. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're teaching different. They're different than us. Well, put them over there up against a wall and let's have Adam for a moment and let's, let's have a good old time just tearing them down. There's an element of racism here in these charges, and it's the first thing that the men say about them is, hey, these are Jews and they're disturbing our city. In other words, these are outsiders. Now, anti-Semitism goes all the way back to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This anti-Semitism continues to this day and that people will single them out and say, oh, wait a minute, there's those Jews. Well, I have no, no doubt about it. This is spiritual. And this is something that the spirit world understands that in this world of flesh and blood, that those are God's chosen people. 
And so we see spiritual forces coming against them. Why do you think there was so much demonic activity in the promised land when Jesus shows up? You know, you don't hear about this kind of activity all over the world. You hear about it there at ground zero to the resist the coming of this Messiah, this coming son of God who promises to take over and cast out all those who oppose God. So this charge here has an idea of racism. They were advocating customs that were unlawful, so they were going against traditions, against the religions of the people, and by implication, the crowd felt that these men were against them themselves. So the crowd, enticed by their own desires, uh, the crowd participates in the in this injustice. Now, what were their own desires? Well, their own desires were to maintain the status quo. Their own desires were to uh, have their national identity recognized and have it be the majority opinion. They wanted to belong. They wanted to belong to the winning team. This is simple tribalism as we see it in our, in our world today. What else did they desire? Well, they desired also for a spectacle. The crowd desires to see something happen. Everybody slows down to look at the accident along the side of the road. Everyone gathers around when there's a ruckus in the city and they want to see what's happening. They want to understand the, the drama between the parties and the conflict and they want to jump in and take a side. This is human nature, sinful human nature as seen in this crowd. Well, there's not just foes here. There's friends. And there's some human friends. And first of all, we see very obviously Paul and Silas, who we find doing what? In prison, singing and praying. They are singing hymns. They are praying together in prison. What incredible fellowship. What incredible friendship in the gospel and in the spirit these men are uh, having. They're not blaming each other for the situation because it would be easy maybe for Silas to say, Paul, if you hadn't, if you hadn't cast out that demon, we wouldn't be in this mess. We could have put up with her. We could have handled this another way. Why could you just leave well enough alone? And then Paul might be responding to him. Well, well Silas, why didn't you do something? I didn't see you do, doing anything. I did what seemed best. You weren't doing a single thing about it. You hated it as much as I did. I should have brought John Mark. He wouldn't have gotten us into this mess. And we don't see this between Paul and Silas. And yeah, we saw disagreements before uh, with Barnabas and Paul over John Mark, but those things are going to be mended. These men are friends. These men are family in the family of God. And here they are seen together, singing together and singing praises. They have one another. Another friend here, interestingly, is the jailer, the man charged with keeping them locked up, the man who puts them in the inner prison and in stocks because he was told to keep them securely. And so he wanted to make sure to do a good job, to follow instructions, and he did exactly that. But look at what a friend this is in the end of the story. And the encouraging thing here is you don't yet know who your friends are. When you meet new people on the street, when you knock on the door to share with them the gospel or give them a book or something like that, you don't yet know if they're maybe going to be a friend like this. But look at this friend, this jailer. He, they, he asks how he, how he should be saved. They tell him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he took them 
the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced in his household with him. And so this is a, a powerful testimony. Brought them up into his house, set food before them. There's no more intimate scene than to sit and have a meal with somebody. Interestingly, yet again, here we see in the book of Acts, these Jewish men, Paul and Silas, having dinner in a Gentile house. And that is something that previously would have been unheard of, but it's made possible by the gospel, by God who has declared all things clean and all people available to the gospel. And so here are now tremendous friends. They've made a friend. They've came, they come back later. They visit Philippi. Paul writes a letter to them, uh, probably multiple letters. And they have this man as a lifelong brother in Jesus Christ and his whole family. And so this is profound and kind of God to put these human friends into the paths of Paul and Silas. But they have a greater asset than these human friends. They have a, a, a greater ally than that. And that, of course, is God, their spiritual friend. If we take a look at what happens here, it is God, as we read chapter 16, it's God who providentially guides them to Macedonia by giving Paul the vision and, and cutting off their way to other places. It's God who opened Lydia's heart to understand the gospel and moved her to invite them to stay with her. It is Paul, or it is the name of Christ that Paul uses to cast out the demon. It is God, obviously, who opened the jail and saved the jailer and his family. And it is God then who brought rejoicing and fellowship on that very night. And of course, this is all a net win for God. Think about this point by point, who wins and loses here? And I want you to consider then who are the winners and losers here? And to think about all the elements and all the people involved and, and what the outcome was for them, because there's a great number of lives intersected in just this one chapter. First of all, we have the girl. And for her, is this not a solid win? She got rid of this demon. You might say, well, yeah, but she lost this ability that she had that maybe made her famous in town and, and made uh, her owners like her. And maybe they were hard on her. I assure you, everything we understand and we know from the scriptures concerning this type of spiritual oppression, we understand that any situation is better than the one being controlled by an evil spirit. A solid win for this girl. Now the owners, we're going to have to count this a loss for them. Riches, of course, come and go. They had some hope and material gain and lost that hope. But they had a great ignorance of what they were dealing with. They didn't understand the nature of the, the forces they were dealing with. And if they had, they would have rejoiced with this girl. They would not have sought profit for it. They would have sought help for her. For them, in this account, this is a loss. Now, later, could they perhaps have understood what had happened there, have understood the importance of it? Did they maybe come to faith later through the testimony of Lydia or the jailer or others who had been touched by the ministry there? 
We have no idea, no way of knowing. But as far as we see it in this scene, it's a loss for them. Or how about the magistrates? What was their situation? Did they win or lose in this? Well, I'd say it's it's mixed. I'd say mostly it was a loss because they were greatly embarrassed by what had happened. They had come very close to getting in some serious trouble for wrongfully uh, executing this justice or rather this injustice upon these Roman citizens. So in that way, it's a, a loss for them, but it's kind of a win for them because they didn't get in all the trouble they could have. The mercy of Paul and Silas uh, is, is to their benefit, and perhaps they knew better for next time. How about the crowd here? Well, the crowd was entertained for a day, so that's a bit of a win for them. They had a little something to do. Hey, they got home. Hey, Saul beaten today. Wasn't that great? And, you know, everybody rejoiced with them, perhaps. I don't know. But they missed out on something. They missed out on the true message. And perhaps some of them won in this later in that they considered, why would those men submit to this beating? What were they doing? And what do they mean that they, they cast a demon out? You know, what does it mean that they, they got rid of the spirit of divination? How, how did one word from this man change this girl? And so those are things that perhaps they had the opportunity later to reflect and consider those things. But I'd say all in all, this is a loss for the crowd because they had some enjoyment at the expense of someone else's well-being and not just anyone, but the family of God. And that is not a good position for them to be in. The true spectacle of course, was not the men being beaten. The true spectacle wasn't even this miraculous jailbreak. The true spectacle that they missed out on was this. What is it that makes two men in the middle of the night, locked in stocks, sing? And that they missed out on. And that's a shame. So the crowd misses out. How about Paul and Silas? You might say, well, this is a loss for them. They spent time in prison. They were beat. You know, how horrible was all of this whole situation? No, no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue against that. I'm going to say for Paul and Silas, this is a solid win. And this is a solid win because even with the great difficulties, what do we find them doing? We find them in prison singing and praying together. We find them having new converts to the church in Philippi. The jailer and his family have now been added to the congregation, and that is a solid win. And for any preacher of the gospel, we will give virtually anything for that to happen. We see this is a solid win for them. They got to cast out a demon. Paul had the opportunity to, to relieve this young woman of this spiritual oppression by calling upon the name of Jesus and seeing the faithful response of Jesus and, and the Spirit of God to accomplish this great work. And so to witness such a thing is a great encouragement, a great reinforcement, a, a great affirmation of their ministry. And so this is a solid win for Paul and Silas. They had an adventure. They had the opportunity to perform more ministry and to change lives. That is always a win for a minister of the Christian gospel. But what about for God? 
Was this a win for them? Uh, yeah. For God, it's always a net win. And this is a principle of Scripture that may have been part of the reason Paul and Silas were able to sing while they were in prison, because they knew this about God. Because all that the owners and the magistrates and the crowd may have intended for evil upon Paul and Silas, God intended for good. This is what we read about in the book of Genesis, as we see in the life of Joseph here, where his brothers had sold him into slavery, and uh, he ended up in prison in Egypt, in a foreign land and everything, separated from his family for a great number of years. And after their father dies, they're like, we better try to make things right with Joseph because now that dad's gone, he's probably going to get revenge on us. But this is Joseph's response to this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, he says. He had no intention of having revenge because he saw the bigger picture. He saw that God was working for the benefit of his people. This is the promise, the eternal promise of God for all of his people. It says in Romans chapter 8, Paul would go on to write this later. Maybe he had this scene in Philippi in mind when he did it. I don't know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. As he uh, nursed the scars and the wounds from the beating that he took in Philippi, I'm sure his thoughts went to the jailer, to the smile upon his face, to the joy of his families. They rejoiced at the salvation that Paul had brought. These were the memories that he was forging. They were the memories that God was making for them. They were the path that they were on in which God works all things for the good of his people. Well, I hope these have been helpful, but what else can we say about this here? Well, in conclusion, I want to begin with a quote. And this is from Richard Wormbrand, who spent many years in a Soviet prison uh, because of his faith. It says this, that he says, there was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man who could not hear the music considered them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music, to which other men are deaf. They dance and do not care if they are considered insane. And this is my encouragement to you. Believe that God, that the Lord is making the best of every moment, in his service. Focus on the positive outcomes for ministry and you will be taking upon yourself the very mind of Christ. The mind of one whom Paul wrote in the letter to the Philippians that had such a mind as to go steadfastly toward the cross. And this is important. Jesus even looked upon those who would oppose his plan of going to the cross as Satan himself, as he rebukes Peter for Peter saying, no, 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 this can't happen to you. Jesus speaks of his death. Peter says, no, th this will never be. I won't let this happen. And, Peter, and Jesus rebukes him sharply saying, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was marching to the cross. He was moving toward suffering. 
Jesus is the same one who calls his enemy Saul in Acts chapter 9 to himself. And he explains to Ananias, he says, oh, no, no, go talk to Saul because I have to tell him how much he must suffer for me. And Paul's ministry is such a powerful ministry to spread the gospel all around the world at the time. This is how God works. He takes ashes and turns them to beauty. He takes death and turns it into life. He takes defeat and he brings it to victory. This is the way of God so that we may never despair as his people. His children are never on the losing side. This is how Paul and Silas could sing a song even in the stocks in the inner prison, not because they expected release, but they knew that this would not stop the work of God going forward. They knew that their incarceration, however long, however dreadful, however terrible, would not stop the love of God for his church, would not stop the progress of the kingdom of God, of flipping human being after human being from one side to the other throughout all the world. They knew that that moment, there would not be an effect for loss for the kingdom, but it would be a gain. They knew that there is no effort for loss in the kingdom of God. They knew that there is no sacrifice without glory in the kingdom of God. They know that there is no moment without effect in the kingdom of God. Paul and the others walking away from this, I sometimes wonder what they were thinking, how they talked about these things as they left, as they walked away. Because you know how it is after you have a big experience and an exciting experience and the adrenaline begins to wear off, you begin to reflect about it with one another and talk about things. And maybe they were talking about how it had worked out for good. Perhaps uh, Silas is saying, you know, that that looked pretty ugly there for a while, but that actually turned out to be really good. And maybe Paul thoughtfully thought, you know, it always seems so. It always seems like the Lord is working things to the good of those who love him. And maybe that inspired him. But they only saw that much. Luke perhaps was thinking, you know what? Someone should write this down. This was pretty exciting. And he did. And we have it. And here it is, Paul and Silas. They couldn't have possibly calculated it. Because think about this. Here it was written down by Luke, who was, who was with them through much of this, but not in prison. And could Paul and Silas have thought, have calculated, had considered what this account in Acts chapter 16, what their time in prison, their beating, would mean? to 2,000 years of Christians that would follow them, that would read this account, that would seemingly sit and pray and sing with them in prison because of their great faith and be inspired by it. I hope that's where we find ourselves today. I encourage you, go and boldly preach the truth. Do not be concerned about the consequences, for they are in the hands of God, your loving Father, who will not let your toil go without great and beautiful consequence in the kingdom of God. Love your enemies, even your jailers, and refuse to be discouraged. Sing a song, knowing that God is working all the time to further the kingdom, even in what 
you might perceive to be a failure. Go on with this and may it bless you and may you understand that the Lord is working all things for his glory and for the benefit of his people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this great account of your faithful servants. We thank you most of all for your faithfulness to them to not allow their toil or their beating to be in vain. But you, Lord, always make a way for your great gospel to spread. You bring in more into the family of God. Lord, for that we praise you and we thank you and we want you to receive great glory and honor for it. And we honor you this day with our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to continue to study the book of Acts, and if you've missed the series to this point, you can go back and start over and follow along in your Bibles as you uh, read and as you learn in the book of Acts, and we'll learn together. But I want, you to, I want to encourage you to contact us if you have questions or concerns, uh, anything about the scripture, if you're looking for a church near you or you want to know how to, to find a good Bible-believing church, we can help you with that virtually anywhere. And so uh, I pray that you'll give us contact, that you'll let us know how these videos are doing, how they're helping you, and also uh, your questions and concerns and even objections. If you disagree with what you saw, I invite interaction for I too am learning. So I pray that you have a, a blessed time, and I hope this has found you well. God bless you.